Now then, let's turn to John chapter 4. And uh, last Lord's Day, we saw in verse 7 how a woman of Samaria came to draw water. And just as we looked at how she came to be beside the well that day, we can look this morning with God's help at how the Lord himself came to be beside the well that day. We're told in verse 6, midway through the verse, that Jesus, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Being wearied, he sat thus or sat wearily by the well. As I mentioned before the reading, we began our study last uh, Lord's Day evening, our study of Christ and his meeting with this woman. And we really considered her situation in life as she came to the well at 12 noon. Now, on the face of it, I suppose you're liable to think that we're not really told all that much about the woman, but as we saw, we're told more than we do realise. The thing that comes out most plainly is that after five marriages, this woman has now chosen to live in open sin in her community. She's defying the word of God and indeed the culture in which she lives. Although Samaria was very multicultural uh, with many languages and many gods, there was still a common consensus that marriage was right. But she is defying that after five marriages which for whatever reason have obviously failed. So she's now living openly with somebody else. But as we saw too, she is unexpectedly, I suppose, um, unsurprisingly, she's unfulfilled in her life and she's unhappy. And she's also lonely. The well was the common meeting place for many women in the village, meeting there early in the morning and again very late in the evening for fresh cold water both times. She comes on her own at 12 noon when nobody else does. And although this woman has a religious heritage and she knows about it and she is loosely glad to be descended from Jacob and is obviously defensive about Jacob's name and his family and the general religion that she's had, at the same time she's extremely confused by it and doesn't really follow anything herself. She doesn't know where worship should be offered, which particular place of worship she should go to, or indeed how God should be worshipped. And again, that's no surprise. It's not just the fact that there were other religions prevalent in Samaria, but those who worshipped the Lord had really forgotten or rejected how to worship him properly. They only had the first five books of the Old Testament. The Samaritans didn't recognise the prophets the other books that followed. So there was really a mixture that was confusing too. 
and perhaps there are many who can identify with that. Even if there is some distant longing in your heart, maybe you are confused as to where or how to worship God. Now, as this woman comes to the well, and comes to the well like that, bearing all these things in mind, and like I said last week, let's try and look at the whole passage as much as we possibly can through the woman's eyes and with respect to her experience. At the same time as she comes to the well, she's surprised to find somebody there at that time, and she recognises by the distinctive clothing that the man wears that he is, of course, a Jew. Now, immediately all the prejudices arise, and you know what it's like yourself to have prejudices, what you expect people to be like according to where they come from or what their heritage is or whatever, and all her prejudices would rise up. She would expect, first as a Jew, that he would want nothing to do with her at all, and again, as a man, that he would be reticent to speak to her as a woman. So I'm quite sure that part of her would simply want to turn around with a water pot and go back home. But these water pots, even when they were empty, were heavy. The well outside Sychar, as you can still see it today, is two miles outside the city, and so she resolves to draw water as quickly as possible and simply to leave. She's got no intention whatsoever of talking to the stranger beside the well, and neither, as I just mentioned, neither has she any expectation that he's going to talk to her, being a woman and a Samaritan at that. So she just comes um, and continues to complete her task. Now, I know we're all in church today. Uh, We're all in church presumably because... We want to hear God speak. We wish to speak to the Lord, to bring our offering of worship and prayer, and we wish the Lord to speak to ourselves. But some of us might not be in church for that reason. There are many people in churches who are not there for that particular reason. Things like habit or custom, uh, things like pleasing people. Um, These kinds of things can sometimes bring people to church. The last thing you expect sometimes, maybe the last thing you even want, is for God actually to speak to you or to you, you to find yourself speaking to God. It would be a surprise to you, maybe an unwelcome surprise, if you were to find yourself and God in communication one with the other. Uh, But that, of course, happens to people in church. Uh, whatever takes you there, you can sometimes be surprised that the Word of God just suddenly makes contact with you and you begin to make contact with it. Your own heart opens up before the Lord as the Lord comes near to you in life and in power because that's what His Word is. And according to His sovereign will, just like the wind blows, you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going, but you see its effects. So it is with the word of God. He comes down in the power of the Holy Spirit and begins to apply that word of God to your own heart and soul. So maybe you came here just to perform a task like you always do, maybe on Sunday morning or on Sunday evening. But may God speak to you as God spoke to this woman. And may you speak to God as this woman spoke to the Son of God. So then, she brings 
her water pot. She lowers it into the well and she draws it out in silence. And if you look at the well today, there's just seven and a half feet in its diameter. It still goes down over a hundred feet, um, seven and a half foot diameter. So the Lord is sitting not more than seven and a half feet from herself. It's a bit of an uneasy and awkward silence as she lowers the water pot into the well and draws it. And the Lord allows her to do all that because he obviously doesn't ask her for a drink until she's put the water pot down and brought it up. So all that is done with the silence. And just as she's ready to leave, she's surprised when the stranger speaks. Now, as I said right at the outset, it's really from the woman's point of view that we're looking at this whole incident, but I think it's profitable right now in many ways just to leave her for the moment and to let the spotlight shine on the one who's at the heart of of the whole of the scripture, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Just leave her for the moment and consider the Christ who she meets. After all, if this was a, a strange place for her to be at 12 noon, it's an even stranger place for him to be at 12 noon. A Jew in Samaria sitting beside a well two miles out of town. We saw what took her here, but what took him here? Well, let me just say that the Christ that we find here is on an unexpected journey. And he's on an unexpected journey in three ways. First of all, for him it's a retreat. Now, I don't mean a retreat in the sense of time apart, like people go away on a retreat. Although there are times when the Lord did retreat for that purpose. Um, when he went into a desert place or a quiet place and rested a while. You'll remember on one occasion when the disciples were busy teaching the word of God themselves and witnessing and testifying to Christ, when they came back to Christ and told him everything that they had been doing, he told them just to come apart to a desert place and to rest a while. And friends, we all discover as Christians how important that is. We can't be working and labouring and testifying all the time. We can't give out unless we're taking in. Any pool of water will become stagnant. It needs an inlet and an outlet. If you stop either of them, it becomes stagnant. And we've got to remember both. Some don't have an outlet. But some forget the inlet. We need to be apart with God. The value of the desert place was not simply being away from people. Well, that may have its own benefit. We all discover that. But the Christian discovers that the reason for being away from people is to be with God. To be one to one with God and close to the Lord. Where, where he shares his most intimate secrets with you where he tells you the things you most need to know for your salvation, for your growth in grace and knowledge of him, one-to-one, in a wilderness, in a desert place. That's the advantage of a Sabbath. The Sabbath certainly requires us to leave off work and to make sure we don't give others work and to rest. But it's equally clear from the commandment that that the function of the Sabbath is not just 
to do that, but to do that in order to be with God, to worship Him with His people in public, but also ourselves privately. And I'm sure all the Lord's people, those of you who are the Lord's people, will discover as you go on in your Christian life how vital that Sabbath is. You feel sometimes that without it you would perish. It just calls you apart with God. So there were times like that when the Lord and the disciples retreated in that way. But this kind of retreat is different. It's not time apart with God, but a withdrawal from conflict. And by that I mean an unnecessary conflict between himself and the Pharisees. Now, a couple of Sabbath nights ago, we saw how the Pharisees began to quarrel with John the Baptist's disciples about baptism. And they pointed out that Jesus was actually attracting more to baptism than John the Baptist was. And they tried to put Jesus against John and John against Jesus and so on. Things that the devil always tries to do. But we read here right at the beginning of the chapter, if you look at it in verse 1, that when the Lord knew or when Christ knew that the Pharisees had heard that he had made and baptized more disciples than John the Baptist, although he personally did not do it but the disciples, he left Judea and departed for Galilee. Now that's a withdrawal to avoid conflict. Now it's actually quite surprising in the Bible how often you find Jesus doing that. Sometimes he heals people. We read an example of that and tells them not to tell anybody that he has actually healed them. Now that's so counterintuitive when we know the scriptures and we know the gospel and we know the burden that the Bible lays on us to share and to tell what the Lord has done for us. So it's surprising to find Jesus sometimes saying, don't say anything, but keep this quiet. But the reason for it is very straightforward. It's because the Lord does not wish to provoke unnecessary conflict or confrontation. Now, the Lord wasn't afraid of conflict. He wasn't afraid of confrontation, but neither did he go out of his way to seek it. He never needlessly courted it. And he especially avoided it when he knew that the people he was speaking to just weren't in the spirit to listen to what he was going to say. That's why he told the disciples, and of course you and me too, not to cast out pearls before swine. The swine there represent people who are in no mood to listen to you or to entertain what you have to say. And the Lord says, well, don't put the pearls before them then, because they will just turn around and trample you underfoot. And I'm sure in life we've discovered that too. There is a time for war. There's also a time for peace. And sometimes it's not easy to know when you should speak and when you should refrain from speaking because there is a time to speak as well and a time to be silent. Um, How do you know when to say something and when not to? Well, I think if you can rightfully expect that kind of hostile response, you, you just simply need to stay quiet. That's particularly important, let me just say it, when you're sharing the gospel with people close to you. 
uh, very often in your own family, and you'll discover sometimes that uh, the people that are hardest to bring the gospel to are people who are very close to you. Well, there's a tendency sometimes just, just to keep on speaking and keep, to keep on insisting on getting the gospel across, and it comes from a good heart. It comes from a heart that is full of desire that your spouse or your child or whoever it is, your brother or sister, would come and know the Lord and find salvation as you have. The sheer weight of their eternal destiny hangs upon you, so it's right to want to speak and to want to share, but it's not always right to do it. And I think the only way to guide us in that connection is just to make sure that we are walking closely with God ourselves and that we are sensitive to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. And it's not difficult in a way to discern too much. If you, the world speaks about putting your toe in the water to see what the temperature is. In a spiritual sense, just do that. Or, or try the lock and see if, if the door yields. If it doesn't, don't kick it down thinking you're doing God's work. If, if it's locked, leave it. Leave it until an appropriate season. And as I said, the Lord did that more than once. The little passage that we read from Matthew was very revealing. When the Pharisees went out to plot against him, and when Jesus knew it, he withdrew. Crowds followed him, he healed them, but he said, don't make it known. Now Matthew, as he's guided by the Spirit, observes that this is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He remembers that Isaiah the prophet had written this, that he will not quarrel or cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. He will not strive or cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. There was nothing ostentatious, brash, or loud about the Lord's ministry. And friends, as Christians, we need to remember that in our witness, and the servants of the Lord need to remember it too. It's very unbecoming for preachers of the word to be always self-referencing and somehow lifting themselves up instead of lifting the Lord up. Even the Lord himself didn't do that. Paul could say that we preach not ourselves, we don't preach ourselves, but we preach Christ crucified. So if you were listening to the Apostle Paul, you would never have the sense that somehow or other this was all about him. The strange thing is that there was a sense in which the ministry of Christ was like that. Now I say a strange sense because in Christ's situation, the man was the message. Normally the man is not the message. I am irrelevant to what's going on here today. It is solemnly true for myself that my life and conduct may commend the message or it may cloud the message. But at the end of the day, I have nothing to do with the message. Nothing at all to do with it. In Christ's case, that was not the case. Come to me, all ye who labour and are heavily burdened, and I 
will give you rest. He preached himself. But he still preached it in a way that was unostentatious. A way that seemed to be somehow still self-effacing. A way that was quiet, avoiding quarrelsomeness and avoiding strife. Even when you heard the God of glory preach in this world, you were struck by humility and grace. How important it is for us, if we are the Lord's, to make sure that we stay humble. And, you know, I I sometimes feel that too. I've had the experience, you possibly had the experience of hearing people preach on streets, street preachers, as they're often called. Now, I'm sure there is a place for street preaching, but to be honest, I've seldom seen it done well. I've seen people shouting, drawing attention to themselves, haranguing people as they're passing by, insisting on breaking into whatever they're doing, as though that was somehow carrying the authority of God into the situation. It actually isn't. It's actually the opposite of what we find here in this passage. Now, we need to be careful because Christianity is not a private thing. It is for the public square. It does need its space in the newspapers. It needs its space on the television. It needs its space on the media everywhere. But let the Spirit always be one of grace and humility. And our Lord was gracious and our Lord was humble, even though the message was about himself. It's almost difficult to think of how the Son of God could be humble, but humble the Son of God was. And how much more fitting it is for you and for me to be humble. So he didn't court needless controversy. It was an unexpected retreat. He also took an unexpected route because we read in verse 4 that he needed to go through Samaria. Now what kind of necessity was that? What kind of need did he have to go through Samaria? It certainly wasn't a geographical necessity because remember from last Sabbath evening if you were traveling from Judea in the south back to Galilee in the north you would go east and you would bypass Samaria. You would cross the Jordan so that you wouldn't need to go through it. That's what the Orthodox Jews did because their religion had become cold and nationalistic. There was nothing in them of sharing the good things of God. It was just for themselves. But there was no geographical necessity to go through Samaria. So that just leaves us with this that it was spiritually necessary to go through Samaria. He just had to go. It was God's will for him to pass through Samaria. We're told in the scriptures that a good man's footsteps and a good woman's footsteps too are ordered by the Lord. It's a wonderful truth that. But a good man's footsteps are ordered by the Lord. It's a good thing to think about that day by day. How much more is that the case in connection with the good man's footsteps? The man who is supremely good, the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll remember from the scriptures and from what Jesus himself taught us, you'll remember that where he did, what he did, and what he spoke were all given him by the Father. His itinerary was given him by the Father in the covenant of grace before he ever came into this world. 
In the volume of the book, it written is of me. And everything was written of it in the volume of that book. If we take the volume of that book to be not just the scripture, but the eternal counsel of God, that this will be where you go. This will be what you say. And this will be the one to whom you speak. All these things are ordered. Now, of course, in a state of humanity, that's just revealed to him as he grows and goes on in dependence upon the Spirit of God. But that doesn't change the fact that the whole thing is laid out for him by God. He had to go to Samaria. He had to go. But that doesn't answer the question. If you're going to say, well, that that he had to go to Samaria, it just pushes the question back a stage further, because why did he have to go to Samaria? The answer to that surely lies in the fact that he had to meet this woman. And in fact, not just this woman, but the rest of the inhabitants of this small town of Sankar, who, who came out just a little later to meet him. Because when the woman, of course, discovers that this is the Christ, when she discovers the love of Christ for herself and the care of Christ for her own soul, she goes back into the city and she tells the people that she meets there. And these people come out and speak to the Lord themselves. And these things happen because... Unbeknownst to anybody, God was actually preparing these people in Saika, including this woman, for meeting himself. The Lord goes on to say that. When the apostles enthusiastically began to share the gospel with these Samaritans, the Lord checks them and says, You're reaping, he says, what other people have sown. Now, in some ways, that's a mystery because who sowed amongst these Samaritans? Is it a reference to John the Baptist, maybe? And to his disciples? I think it probably is. So here they are coming out hungrily to hear the gospel from Christ and the apostles. But that's because somebody else sowed there. Now, the point is that unbeknownst to them, the Lord was preparing this people. And who would have expected a reception in Samaria when you didn't get it in Judea? Now, I I can't get this across enough to you, and to myself too. We've got to make sure that we're not um, led astray by our expectations of where people are, where you think they're going to be. And you can look at someone sometimes and say, that person is ready for the gospel. And you can look at another person and say, well, that person is not ready for the gospel. And that family, no chance. There's been no history, no heritage. Um, They're just miles away from the gospel. How do you know? How do you know? If, If you were to ask the apostles, can you find a prepared people? People who are ready here to to receive the gospel in such a way that they will be converted. One of the last places they would have said is Sychar. And one of the last people they would have identified in Sychar is the woman of Samaria who was living with somebody after five failed marriages. But they were wrong. As we can all be wrong. The important thing for us is to be ready to share if we are Christians. To be ready to share and to use the opportunities that God puts our way. That reminds us, I suppose, that retreats are not defeats. Sometimes when you walk away from 
where there was a, a large throng of people that, that you would expect uh, to, to hear the gospel and, and you find yourself in a well at a well in the middle of nowhere you would think well that's, that's a retreat but it's not a retreat God has purposes in these things when Philip was preaching in a, in a revival uh, up north God suddenly said to Philip he said I want you to go down south to the desert road um, that connects Jerusalem to Gaza uh, that connects Gaza uh, and on, on route to Ethiopia. Now, Philip could easily have said, why? Why? I, I don't want to go to a desert. There's a lot going on here. Of course, we know the answer to that, that the Ethiopian Chancellor of the Exchequer was making his journey back from Jerusalem to Ethiopia to report back to the Queen, and he was busy reading the scroll of Isaiah the prophet. How he has that scroll, we don't know, but he's got it. And God wants Philip to tell the Ethiopian exchequer about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Philip doesn't know all that. He's just going to go where God tells him to go. Retreats are not defeats. Even a military general sometimes knows that the best way to make progress is sometimes just to pull back. There are all those people who say, you can't pull back, you can't pull back. Sometimes you do pull back. It reminds us too, to use another spiritual cliche, that disappointments are his appointments. Disappointments are his appointments. God can be at work wherever you are, however quiet or deserted the place will be. And so in that respect, this incident here isn't actually really primarily about a woman finding God. It's about God finding a woman who needs her soul saved. In fact, that's always what's going on. Sometimes when we become Christians, we enthusiastically tell people about how we found God. But as we learn a little bit about the spiritual life, in fact, it doesn't usually take very long, we discover that it's God who found us. It's God who worked our circumstances and guided our paths in such a way that he met us and we met him. It really isn't about this woman finding her fulfillment that day in Christ the Lord. It's about God finding her and giving her that. The glory in that way is always God's. So it's an unexpected retreat for Christ and an unexpected route that he takes. It's also an unexpected rest on his journey. If you were going to stop in Samaria, the obvious place to stop on this particular route would be Sychar itself. The city is only two miles away, but the Lord stops at the well, although he's got no way of drawing anything out of it. And we're told that he stops there wearily being wearied from his journey, sat thus, or that word thus there in the Greek is interesting. It's also interesting in the English. Sat thus, sat in that way. In what way? Sat wearily by the well. He was tired. He was exhausted. In verse 8, the disciples carried on the further two miles to Sychar to buy food. They were concerned for their Lord and their Master. 
because he seemed more tired than themselves. And why should that be? There was nothing weak in connection with the Lord's own nature in that way. Friends, I would suggest to you the reason he was tired was because of the spiritual nature of his work, which nobody could really understand. Spiritual work is really, really tiring work. I remember once speaking to a lecturer who had been lecturing all his life and had to fill in once in the pulpit and said that he had never felt so exhausted in speaking from a pulpit as speaking from the pulpit in comparison with how he spoke from the lecture's desk. There's an exhaustion like it, particularly when the devil is on your case, as he often is. You'll sometimes find that when you're doing the Lord's work, trying to do anything for Christ, really, at home or in church, the devil's on your case. And the tiredness that comes with these things is, is quite amazing, really. But you'll notice how alive the Lord becomes when this woman approaches. And he begins to speak to her about spring water and living water, as though he had just eaten a meal or had a drink himself or just had a good night's rest. And what is the reason for that? Well, he tells us in verse 32, after the disciples come and they've got food and They urge him to eat. He said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. And as usual, the disciples think so literally. They just think so literally all the time. They said, did someone bring him something to eat? And Jesus simply says to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Food to eat that you don't know about. What is it? It's just to do my Father's will and to finish his work. The fact is that the arrival of this woman and her desire and her interest in eternal life was just meat and drink for him. This is a lost sheep. This is a lost soul. This is a long-lost daughter of Abraham, a descendant of Jacob, his own forefather according to his human nature. And Christ knows that his own Father in heaven has taken this woman to the well. He knows that the Holy Spirit has drawn this woman that day to the well. And for him, that nourishes him. And and we're to remember always that um, Christ is, uh, is, is sometimes the one who is observing these things being done by the Spirit of God. Let me take another example to convey what I mean. In other words, we we tend, I suppose, sometimes to think of Christ himself doing these things, when rather the case is that Christ is observing his Father doing these things by the Spirit. Uh, You remember that great uh, test that Christ placed before his disciples in Caesarea Philippi. He asked them first, who do people say I am? And the disciples tell him, well, some think you're you're John the Baptist back from the dead. Others think you're you're Jeremiah back with us. Uh, Others think you're the Elijah that was prophesied to return. That's all very well. Now Christ says, who do you think I am? Who do you think I am? Having listened to me and observed me 
this year and a half, who do you think I am? And of course, it's a bit like what I was saying last week. It's easy enough to discuss what other people think. But God wants to know what you think. You're happy to discuss what other people think about Christ, but God wants to know what you think about him. And of course, famously, Peter said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. To which Jesus responds, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Flesh and blood is just a way of saying, nobody taught you that. It's not human intuition. It's not human understanding. It's not your own human understanding. It's not anyone else's human understanding. What you've just said to me, Peter, is what the Spirit of my Father has worked in your heart. Notice, not himself. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, my identity, but my Father who is in heaven. And in that confession, Christ is seeing the work of God in Peter's heart. Now, it's the same thing here. It's not Christ that drew this woman to the well. It is the Holy Spirit of God that propelled that woman to the well. I'm not saying the woman is conscious of the Holy Spirit. Far, far from it. But that's a moot point. The fact of the matter is that the Holy Spirit that day drew that woman to the well. Just as you can come to church even as you've come to church this morning, not at all conscious that the Holy Spirit of God has propelled you to this house, but perhaps the Holy Spirit has propelled you to this house, and perhaps he has done so with a view to your confession that you have met him in the Scriptures who is the Christ, the Son of the living God, because that's the way these things happen. That's just the way these things happen. And it's astonishing how A real blessing like that just revives someone who is tired and weary. The Lord was slumped, really, in exhaustion beside the well. And when the disciples come back, they find a different person. Even though he's been longer without water and longer without food. I said a minute ago, not in these precise words, but I said that nothing exhausts you like a spiritual conflict. Nothing energizes you like a spiritual blessing. Nothing energizes you like a spiritual blessing. And there are people here who may remember times when God was very near and very active, very powerfully present in your own lives and in the lives of a community when tiredness just vanished away. Vanished away. You didn't feel the thing. Because the Lord was near. Conflict is exhausting. But blessing is energizing. The fact is in a way that there are two thirsty people at the well. She's thirsty for fulfillment in life. She's, She's also thirsty physically. Christ is thirsty physically. But he's thirsty spiritually too. He's thirsty for souls as he always was. Even on the cross as he hung there, famously one of his sayings on the cross was, I thirst. And I've no doubt he's giving vent to the fact that he's exceedingly thirsty on the cross. And he does need to have that application of, um, 
of that vinegar. It's not what he wanted, is it? In fact, that vinegar was contempt. They gave me vinegar to drink when else my thirst was great, Psalm 69. He wanted water, they gave him vinegar. It was enough to lubricate his lips and loosen his tongue and enable him to cry out what he wanted to cry out in triumph. It is finished. And Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Yes, he was thirsty. But the thirst that really predominated even on the cross was the thirst for it to be over. The thirst for his Father, the thirst for his glory, and the thirst for souls. And the same is true beside the well. The best drink to give our Saviour is a, a soul, a lost soul, coming to the knowledge of himself. So Christ is on an unexpected journey. He's taking an unexpected route and he stops for a very unexpected rest. And as he watches her coming towards him, like I said at the beginning, he knows that her heart is full of prejudice against him. He's a Jew. He's arrogant. What's he doing here? He wouldn't want to talk to me. There was a convention that a man didn't talk to a woman on her own. There's nothing said about that in the Bible. It was a convention. To some extent, it's respectable and understandable. But the Lord can break a taboo like that if it needs to be broken. He would never break a commandment, but he would certainly break a taboo like that if it needs to be broken. And, and as for the fact that he's a Jew and She's a Samaritan. The Lord doesn't care about that. A lost soul is a lost soul. A lost Protestant is a lost Protestant. A lost Catholic is a lost Catholic. A lost Muslim is a lost Muslim. A lost Mormon is a lost Mormon. A lost person is a lost person. And to us, they should all be the same. There are the saved and the lost. And even when it comes to the saved, they're just lost people who have been saved. If our heart is right, all people everywhere are the same in need of the Lord Jesus Christ. And sometimes it can put you off people if you think they're prejudiced against yourself. Sometimes I'm conscious of that. If I'm somewhere and people know I'm a minister, they say, right, well, I'm not going to speak to a minister or minister doesn't want to speak to me because ministers are this, this, and this. And for yourself as a Christian... When people know you're a Christian, you say, well, I'm not going to speak because they think I'm this, this, and this. Well, never mind what they think. The Lord, if the Lord was going to follow that example, he'd have said nothing to the woman, thinking, oh, she's not going to listen to what I'm going to say. Why do you just speak? It doesn't take much sometimes to start a conversation. Give me a drink, was all he said. Give me a drink. But that takes us on to the conversation which we'll leave till tonight, God willing. Let us pray. O Lord, O God, we hunger too and thirst for the salvation of souls in need. And conscious that we are in a day when we see not many turning. But we pray that you would come and through the power of the Holy Spirit that you would awaken people to their sense of need and to a thirst for something deeper and more substantial than what this world gives. 
And we are thankful that you took ourselves to the place where we saw that the world has no real answers to anything, where people go round in circles economically, politically and psychologically. We pray, O Lord, that you would lead us to the one who has life to give and who dispenses it, his own endless life through the power of the Holy Spirit. O Lord, may we find him who is life indeed. Open the ears and hearts of all of us who are present today. May none of us leave this house as we entered it. And while at one level that is always true in the connection with the hearing of the gospel, may it be so that this is a life-changing word for ourselves, bringing us from death to life, bringing us to faith in the Lord Jesus, whom it is well worth knowing. We ask these things in his precious name, for his sake. Amen. We'll close singing in Psalm 89. Psalm 89 and at verse 13 where God's arm his right hand later in the verse is working in power Thou hast an arm that's full of power, thy hand is great in might, and thy right hand exceedingly exalted is in height. Justice and judgment of thy throne are made the dwelling place. So God's throne is a throne of justice and judgment. But here we discover wonderfully that mercy, accompanied with truth, shall go before thy face. Now, what's happening here? I think I might have highlighted this in the singing of this psalm a couple of weeks ago, but God's coming towards us. He is moving out, reaching out towards us with mercy and truth together in the gospel. And these people recognize that in verse 15, and therefore they're greatly blessed. Greatly blessed the people are, the joyful sound that, no, that's the sound of God's coming to them in mercy. And the result is that in the brightness of thy face, O Lord, they ever on shall go. And they in thy name shall all the day rejoice exceedingly. Why? Because in thy righteousness shall they exalted be on high. When you come to Christ, Christ clothes you, covers you with his righteousness and lifts you up into fellowship with himself. 13 to 16, we stand to sin.
the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Thank you.